Do you feel stuck in your life, career, or business? And are you ready to take things to the next level? If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is David Trotter, and I'm a transformation coach passionate about helping people just like you rise above your biggest barriers to reach your greatest goals. My superpower is helping people experience tremendous breakthroughs in a short period of time. If you give me 12 weeks, I'll help you launch that new project, go after that better job, or overcome that challenge in your business. To find out how I can help you, head on over to insporising.com slash coach. That's insporising.com slash coach. I show up and it's my metamorphosis every day that I can come out on the other end of this and help people that are hurting and, and suffering to go through their own metamorphosis and live a beautiful, hopeful life. Welcome to Inspiration Rising. My name is David Trotter, and I'm a business growth consultant. I'm passionate about helping business owners, just like you, rise above your biggest barriers to reach your greatest goals, all without the paralyzing overwhelm, feeling all alone, or wondering what the heck to do next. I'm a former pastor and a serial entrepreneur who's passionate about personal growth, because that's what's helped me cultivate peace in my life and empowered me to love my amazing wife, Laura, of 26 years and our two almost grown kids. So if you're all about business, personal growth, and peace in your life, you're in the right place. I'm super glad that you're here. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Inspiration Rising. It is so awesome to have you here. Yes, it is. Hey, you know, I'm not sure if you know this, but I produced and directed a film, a documentary on sex trafficking quite a few years ago. Jeez, I don't know, 2015 maybe, something like that. And we ended up featuring six female abolitionists around the United States who became aware of the issue of trafficking and then opened up aftercare homes. And we went to all those different cities with my team and we shot those and I met Uh, survivors of trafficking and was allowed to interview them with, of course, incredible oversight and making sure that they weren't triggered or they had counseling afterwards if needed. They could stop the interview at any time. It was a very safe environment for them. And I was honored to be able to feature them in the film. If you haven't seen the film, uh, I'd encourage you to watch it. It's called In Plain Sight, Stories of Hope and Freedom. And it's available on Amazon, of course. The whole point of me telling you this is that I was introduced to talking about the idea of violence, domestic violence, uh, trafficking, just in the open, I guess I would say. I mean, that's a weird way of saying it, right, to discuss something in the open. But it's not something you really talk about on a daily basis, at least not the people that I hang out with, right? You're not walking around going, hey, let's talk about domestic violence or sex trafficking or these are topics that are very challenging and very heavy. As a matter of fact, I would come back from these trips having interviewed survivors and talking with abolitionists that are working in these areas, and it would take me two or three days just to un like like de-weight myself. It's not even a word, but like just get the weight of all of that kind of lifted from me. I felt so overwhelmed by it all. And 
So I say that in preparation to go, our conversation today is an honest conversation. It is a story um, from a woman named L.Y. Marlowe, and she is just very open about her own past and about things that she experienced. And I find it so refreshing, right, that these things, although they're heavy and very important and delicate, um, that we do need to be talking about these things, that they shouldn't be just hush-hush or swept under the rug or something that's taboo, but something that is treated with honesty and an openness so that we can prevent it from happening in the lives of other people. Now, L.Y. grew up in a really tough area of Philadelphia, and she had her own experience with an abusive relationship and her own family. Previous generations had had experience with domestic violence, which, by the way, I learned in researching this uh, conversation, that it's also known as intimate partner violence. And I asked L.Y. about that. But L.Y., she moved herself beyond all of this. She put herself through 16 years of night school, sometimes with a baby in tow, and she earned multiple degrees, including an MBA. And years later, during her corporate career, she had a health crisis really because of a lack of work-life balance. And she ended up writing a book called Color Me Butterfly. And that book has won 10 awards, including the National Best Books Award. And L.Y. has gone on to really invest her life in preventing domestic violence, specifically through a nonprofit that she has called Saving Promise. Now, she's going to tell you all the stories behind this. I'm just wanting you to know my heart is that we would be able to talk openly about these things and that we would treat it with tender care and yet honesty, right? So, and I think L.Y. does that beautifully, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. So let's go ahead and jump into my conversation with L.Y. Marlowe. Well, L.Y., thank you so much for taking some time to hang with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I have heard you talk about a letter to Oprah um, that you wrote to her. I don't know if you ever sent it, but I know I'm sure Oprah has gotten a bazillion letters over the years and uh, emails. I'm not even sure I'd know where to, she probably has that so hidden now. You probably couldn't even find how to get in touch with her. You'd have to send her, I don't know, carrier pigeons or something. Uh, <laughs> but but tell me about this letter that you wrote to her and why, what got you to this place where you were reaching out to her for help or support? So David, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I want to tell it from the place of a story. And this sure. story really changed my life because I had just written my first book called Color Me Butterfly, which was a book about four generations of mothers and daughters in my family that suffered and survived over 60 plus years of domestic violence. And it was inspired by the story of my grandmother, my mother, myself, and my daughter. That same year that Color Me Butterfly was published, my daughter had a little girl named Promise. And I discovered that my daughter was involved in a very abusive relationship with Promise's father. And I would get this call one night that told me that my daughter was nearly strangled and killed 
for the second time by Promise's father, while Promise, now six months old, lay on the bed beside her. And I had, at this point, David moved my daughter three different times to three different states to get her out of this abusive relationship. Now, mind you, I had just published this book about the four generations. Now, here was Promise being born into this. And so I drove to Philadelphia, which was the last place that my daughter, I moved her to when I was living in Washington, D.C. And I remember sitting across from her and her telling me the story about what happened and the horrific abuse that Promise Father had instilled on her that day, including threatening to also kill Promise. And that day, after I got my daughter and promised the safety, I felt like I needed someone, anybody that had a voice that can bring attention to this public health global crisis. And I remember getting real still, like who has the, who has the attention of the mass audience? And I wrote that letter and that letter started with Dear Oprah. And I remember it opened up, I will never forget, it was August 25th, 2007. And it said, Dear Oprah, last night my daughter was strangled and almost killed for the second time. And it was, and I went on as a mother in pain and a mother who now, this is the second time my daughter was almost killed by this person who's in pain. And I was just, I go back occasionally and I read that letter over and over again. And the, what draws me to that letter was two words, two lines in that letter that ultimately changed the course of my life. I said, Oprah, if you cannot help me save my daughter, please help me save Promise. And that letter will become the inspiration behind my eventually going forward to raise a national organization called Saving Promise. Did you mail this letter? I not only mailed this letter, I went online and I found at that time, I think it was like, I want to say 19 of Oprah producers or, or, you know, producer assistants or produce sub supervising producers. I mailed a letter, that letter, along with promises, an eight by 10 that I went to Walmart and made copies of eight by 10 of this photograph of promise to everyone that I knew of, of mm -hmm. Oprah's producers, because I felt like I needed to connect with somebody and somebody needed to hear this story in a way that they will see the impact that Oprah could help me make. And here's the thing, David, one of the most common questions that I'm all oftentimes asked is, did Oprah ever respond? Now it would take me years because that was 2007. It would take me years to get to the place to answer it in the way that I'm about to share with you. To which now I'm boldly and with wisdom, I respond now, no, not in that way. She did not, but I'm grateful. Oprah actually gave me a gift, but not responding. Sometimes somebody's non-response or somebody no could be your biggest yes. And here's why it was my biggest yes. Because had Oprah responded, I probably would have went on her show. I probably would have shared my story and my legacy or my connection would have become 
I was on the Oprah Winfrey show and I shared my story. By Oprah not responding, it really helped me step into my calling. God's purpose for my life was to say, I want you to use this in a deeper way. And by not responding, Oprah gave me the gift because she gave me the gift to find my own voice. And so I would eventually decide, you know what? I'm going to walk away from a 20 plus year corporate career to launch this organization called Saving Promise. I knew nothing about nonprofits. I knew nothing about domestic violence. I really didn't. Because even when I wrote Color Me Butterfly, I wrote that book because I was challenged by my doctor who once said to me, change your life or change your life expectancy. Because in corporate America, I was I was I had hit rock bottom and I was in burnout and the stress was literally killing me that I went home one weekend after Dr. Lee said change your life or change your life expectancy. And with that charge, I really got still about what was I passionate about. And I was passionate about writing. And what do we write? Or what do most people tell you to write? Write your own story. Mm -hmm. So I started writing this book about the story of my family. We know what do we know the most? We know our own stories. So I use my own story to tell a story, to tap into my ability and my passion to write. I would not come to know that Color Me Butterfly in writing that story that I wrote in nine months because Dr. Lee said my life was in jeopardy. So I wrote it quickly and it would take about 18 months to get it published. But that book would go on, David, to win 10 awards, including the National Best Book of the Year Award. And that was just me telling the story. My launching Saving Promise would come, you know, 2009 there about. I was started that day, but I didn't really get it 501c3 and all. By the time I figured I needed to do all that stuff, um, it took a couple of years. And then I would go on to begin to build this organization and the vision for Saving Promise, which ultimately is around prevention. Mm -hmm. I know one of the questions that has to be in everybody's mind who's listening is, how's your daughter and how is Promise? How are, how are they doing? Today, and I say today, my daughter and Promise are well. I eventually had to learn to get to the place of not trying to appear like I broke the cycle in my family. I broke the silence because I'm I'm out there and I'm talking about it. But even after my daughter got out of that abusive relationship with Promise's father, who, by the way, she still shared custody with. So, so there's some challenges with that. She would go on to get in additional abusive relationships. And I remember I was feeling, David, like I was living this, this lie. Because here I was trying to, you know, create this nonprofit and build this organization called Saving Promise around prevention and helping other women and children and men confront this global public health crisis. And I was struggling with it with my daughter. And I would finally come to open up about that struggle in my third book, which was called Don't Look at the Monster. And I'm not book dropping right now. I'm really carrying you through my journey because it would take me several years to come to, that book would come out in 2017. Color Me Butterfly came out in 2007, 10 years to without, except for people that were in my immediate circle 
that did not know that here I was struggling with trying to keep my daughter alive in these abusive relationships and also keep promise safe. And so, so, you know, I would eventually come out with the third book called Don't Look at the Monster, and which the title came from one day, I just lost my mother, I was going through a, a, another uh, divorce, I was emotionally, physically, financially bankrupt. And I remember, David, I was on my way from New York City, on an Amtrak train back to DC to get a few hours of sleep, to take a flight out that next morning to Seattle to speak at this big conference. And my mother, in her last words to me, who had just passed away, her final words to me was, I'm proud of you. I want you to continue to do what you're doing. And for my mother to say that to me, a Southern bred mother who didn't tell you she loved you, she showed you, you lo she loved you. And those were her words to me. She said, I love you and I want you to do this. And I just lost her. I didn't know how to fulfill that wish because I was, I was bankrupt physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. I was questioning God. Why me? Why you choose me to do this? I can't do this. And now my mother's gone and you've taken her. How am I supposed to do this? And I remember sitting on that train and picking up my phone and calling my daughter because I had to be reminded, why was I continuing to do what I was doing? Promise was only three at the time. She's now 14. And my daughter answered the phone and I was in tears and she did something she had always helped me to do is to realize why I was doing what I was doing. She put Promise on the phone. Promise got on the phone. And this is around the time she was learning to sleep by herself and she was afraid of the dark and she called it the monsters. Uh -huh. So she heard me crying and she calls me Bumblebee. And she said, Bumblebee, are you crying? I said, yes, baby, I'm crying. And then she said something to me that would become the title of this book. She thought about what my, my daughter and I would always say to her. And she said, but Bumblebee, just don't look at the monsters. Mm -hmm. And that's where the title of that book came from. And in Don't Look at the Monsters, I, and I talk about my monsters being fear, worry, shame, regret, all those things I was carrying for 10 years mm -hmm. while my daughter was still in these abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. And I would write this story and come forward with this story about the struggle I was dealing with while trying to build. And when you're talking to women who who, who are, are looking to, who aspire to start a business or lead in their life or find love or whatever. Here I was, I, I come clean about all of that around the monsters that I was struggling with, fear, worry, doubt, shame, regret, broke for being financially, emotionally, spiritually broke. I talk about my relationship with God at the time. I would just be on my knees every, every morning, begging and asking, begging for grace. Mm. And and just say, why me? What, what is it you want me to do? I don't know how to do. And meanwhile, here I was eating rice because I couldn't even afford my rent because I was bankrupt and mm. I couldn't afford food and, and, and the struggle and the journey I was living from that letter that I sent to Oprah, that gift mm -hmm. that I was going through the trajectory mm -hmm. and the journey of Oprah not responding that gift to that letter. And this for me now in hindsight, and the, the, the subtitle of my book is One Woman's Purposeful Life, The Gift, The Lessons, and the Blessings. So I try to look at what is the gift, the lesson, and the blessing.
Mm-hmm. So it was really a gift, a lesson, and a blessing to go through that journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, thank you for continuing to share your story. I, you know, I uh, we appreciate listening to that um, and uh, and allowing us to kind of live some of this with you. Um, I know one of the things that I've seen you on your websites, you talk about not just the term domestic violence, but intimate partner violence. Uh, and I had never heard that term before. Um, it, perhaps that's just an industry term in that world, but why would you use that term intimate partner violence versus domestic violence? About 10 plus years ago, um, the CDC and, and others in the industry really began to coin intimate partner violence instead of just domestic violence, because we realized that people connected with domestic violence, that it, it somehow meant you were married in a relationship mm-hmm. with, you know, um, just a man, a woman to man relationship. And mm-hmm. we wanted the industry term to be broader, to address same sex, to address dating violence, to address sexual violence. That's a result of intimate partner violence. To address there, we're finding, for example, this uh, intersections between sex trafficking and intimate partner violence, because oftentimes sex traffickers will lure a victim in by first dating them right. to get them into this other life. So it was a way to broaden the landscape of this public health crisis in a way that is more inclusive. Okay. So there are some people who are listening who have had experience with intimate partner violence and they understand what you're talking about. Other people um, would possibly have a disconnect to go, you know, why would LY's daughter keep going back to not only the, the same man, but like different men who would be treating her poorly um, and not to have this be a conversation about your daughter, but just any kind of situation where someone is maybe has a pattern, right, of of uh, developing a relationship with someone who would be abusive. Can you help us t- take us into perhaps some of the psychology of that to help us understand why someone would do that? Yeah, that's such a great question. And let me preface it by saying first that the average number of times that a victim goes back to an abusive partner is minimally seven to nine times. And part of it is because you got to, most people looking flat, straight head on at it will, will say, well, if somebody's not, if someone's mistreating you and abusing you, why would you want that? But you got to look at some of the neat nuances that's related to that. Many times women, and I'll say women, but I do want to say, this is no longer just a women's issue. We're finding that men are abused as well. They just don't come forward as much because they automatically are ostracized as the perpetrator or abuser, right? Or they're ashamed that they were abused by their partner, right? But you have to look at the nuances behind why they might go back. Some women might go back because of children, right? There's a lot of discrepancies, particularly there's a need for law enforcement and particularly judges to be better educated because like I said, my daughter is sharing custody with Promises Father right now. And there's still some, you know, I won't say domestic violence going on, but there certainly is some unhealthy, toxic behaviors that's still right. a part of that relationship. They may go back because of fear. Many times they they 
are afraid that if they leave or if they don't come back, they, they may lose their lives. They go back out of love. They love the person. They don't want to break their family up. They don't want to break up this relationship. It may not even be a family, it may be a dating partner or whatever. There's love. There is, there is shame that, you know, they don't want to tell their, their, their friends and their family. So I just was on a call with a woman who, a very affluent woman, woman who, you know, it's top of her entrepreneurial career, literally came into this discussion out of that call. And she said, I want to reach women who are fluent like me that are ashamed because we're ashamed that people are going to judge us because in the, in the boardroom, so to speak, you know, in corporate America, et cetera, we're like, you know, powerful women, but then we are going home to this, this scandalous life stop, right? So they're ashamed. So they stay in it or they go back to it. They don't want to lose that image that they created, this perfect reality where they're living in the beautiful suburban style home or the city or whatever, um, having a life of affluence and all that. And they don't want to give that up. So when you look at why women particularly go back, all of those things take into consideration. And I think we got to get under the hood of that. And that's why even at Saving Promise, I talk about prevention in three levels of prevention. People think when I speak prevention, I'm saying I'm thinking, you know, keep those that have not been affected from becoming a victim. No, there are three levels. There's primary. That's true. Keeping those from being affected, particularly with the younger generation. There's secondary, which is like with my daughter and other women and this other woman that I was just talking to from going back, re reoccurrence, going back that seven or nine times and empowering them financial empowerment, other ways of empowering them so they don't have to feel beholden to this relationship or, or educating our law enforcement and judges and government and social industry around making sure that they give people what they need, the resources they need, so they don't feel beholden to that relationship. So that's secondary. And then there's something called tertiary where we restore people back to health and wellness. Because I was in a... Uh, a, a um, uh, invitation only webinar last night where actually Oprah and Dr. Perry, who is written a book with Oprah around the trauma of issues like this. Um, and, and they talked about the trauma that's related, the, the, the trauma that it takes trauma, people overcoming the trauma. Um, there's something, there's a book, David, for example, that called, that's called the, the, the body keeps score. And when they say the body, they're talking about the mental, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual. So sometimes there, there's damage that's done. We might yank somebody out of a relationship, but we have not dealt with some of the trauma that comes as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So you got to really look at the nuances. And that's the kind of thing in the work that I'm doing with Saving Promise through a partnership we have with the Harvard um, School of Health. School of Public Health, THJN School of Public Health is doing um, that we want to do around looking at the root causes and some of the impacts around trauma and other areas that will create the framework for that people don't feel like they have to go back and continue to be exposed to this unfortunate, um, abusive um, uh, dichotomy and, and trauma. Mm -hmm. How much is an issue of uh, lack of self-worth play into someone either uh, 
entering into or being attracted to a relationship that could turn abusive, you know, how much, how much of that is a, is a woman lacking self-worth that's kind of putting up with that. I recognize the reasons why they may stay and financial was one that I know you didn't necessarily mention, but that's, yeah, I would assume that would be a huge one too. Mm -hmm. Like just the Mm -hmm. issue of finances, but the issue of um, their own personal value um, is that play into it at all or? So I'm going to speak from the heart instead of the head when I answer that question. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Because when you, first of all, most, and, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from an angle of women. Most women that are in abusive relationships, I often say that physical scars, and I don't minimize physical scars, will heal. It's those emotional and psychological, spiritual scars. And what I mean by spiritual, ripping somebody's spirit away, taking their hope, their sense of self away. Those are the things that we need to address. And, but not we as a community, I also, and I'll say it like I tell my daughter, one of the reasons why she keep getting in these abusive relationships with one man to the next man, to the next man, to the next man, because her own lack of sense of self, her own lack of self-respect and let self, self-worth and self, um, you know, the, when you think of the uh, Maslow hierarchy of, of self, right? Her own self-sense of self, of her self-esteem, her self-worth, her self, her confidence, all of that is impacted. And so there is a responsibility, not only for the public health and grassroots community to help prevent and help people, but there's also a responsibility of the survivor to be able to say, how much of this am I also that I, I many of us don't have a choice, but some of us do. And I want to say that from, from, from a deep place of my heart. And, I, and I'll say it like I said to my daughter, you have a choice. When somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Dr. Maya Angelou once said, when someone shows you who they are the first time, believe them. And I've been in situations, for example, with myself, where I'm all caught up in the honeymoon phase. And maybe I, I, the person, I didn't call the person back and he might've said, Oh, I didn't hear from him. What were you doing? Who were you with? And I'm thinking, oh, that's so cute. He really wanted to know who I was with. No, that's a sign. That's a sign. And so oftentimes we ignore those little signs. We got to pay attention to them. So, and then that starts to degrade our self-worth and our self-image and our self-confidence and all those things. Because by the time we get deep into the abusive part, you know, the, the punch or the hit or, or the physical part may not come for some time. But those other signs, they happen on the second and third day <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. But we sometimes get so caught up. Yeah. It seems like one of the greatest gifts that we can give our own children, both uh, female and male, is just pouring life into them day in and day out, helping them cultivate that sense of you are valuable. You don't need someone else to love you to be valuable. You are valuable in and of you know who you are, and you have incredible self worth. You know, and just 
oh, I want that for, you know, my kids, my kids are 18 and 21 mm-hmm. and, um, want my daughter to see how I treat, you know, her mom, my wife, mm-hmm. I want her, my son to see that as an example, um, so that they know that anything outside of like anything that's verbally attacking or abusive, anything that's physically, you know, raging, all of those things, this is just not an option for you. Why? Because Absolutely. you're worth so much more than that. Absolutely. And, and especially if you hit on something, David, modeling healthy behaviors around what healthy looks like. In fact, mm. you know, I was on a call earlier today with my team with Saving Promise. And I, I, you know, I said, we have to reimagine how to prevent domestic violence. So let's, let's, let's take off the ugliness of it, right? We know it's ugly. Why don't we change and reframe the message? Why don't we teach our young people and our kids? By the way, young people, most people think that more married, that's why we change it to intimate partner violence as well and dating violence, because most people think that is people our age, David, that's in these abusive relationships with the highest rate. No. You know who they are? They're ages 13 to 25. Wow. They're your daughter and your son. They're mm. your, your niece. They're your, you know, that, that young generation. 69% of women and 53% of men are below the age of 25. Wow. Below the age. So we have to model what does healthy look like. Mm. I want to bring into the curriculum in public and private schools and universities, et cetera. Years ago, when I was coming up, you know, we, we had sex education. You know, I want to bring a g- curriculum around what does healthy look like. Mm-hmm. and teach them skills as opposed to focusing on the ugliness of it, teach them the positive of it. Mm-hmm. Because out of that will be surmised what not to do, mm-hmm. right? And then demonstrate that in our homes. I think the first place younger people, especially children, can learn is in the home. Mm-hmm. It seems like, uh, and you alluded to this when you were talking to the woman today who was affluent, that Um, it does, even in my mind, I will think that domestic violence, I think of people who are poor, Mm -hmm. right? I think of people that, you know, um, are, are just, they're, they're, they're living in, you know, the projects or it's a poor poor white trash or trailer park or, uh, even the term wife beater t-shirt. Come on now. Yes. Yes. Right. (laughs) Yes. I do not wear a, I wear a V-neck. I just want you to know uh, why. I <laughs> okay. Cause I uh, say, stop <laughs> this right now. Go take it off. <laughs> right. But even those types of things. Kinda... We, we have to change David. Oh, you are speaking to me right now. You are speaking to me because we, where it starts is changing, shifting social and cultural norms, changing the dialect, the, the messaging. And I'm not talking just in the, the, the white feet of t-shirt, like, just like that. We got to change it in our music. You know, it is okay in some of the pop culture music to, 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 to say certain words and to degrade women. It is okay in certain videos that we're watching on YouTube, you know, whether or not it's, you know, you see things like, you know, the, the most, a uh, bizarre video to watch and you see a man come up and hit a woman and whatever and it's supposed to you know get two billion views 
you know, it has to start there in terms of shifting cultural and social norms. So this is not an issue just about intimate partner violence and domestic violence. It is a public health crisis. You know, I love that commercial years ago, David. Do you remember this commercial? I'm about to date us both, but I think it came out during the war on drugs campaign. I think when um, First Lady um, um, Reagan was 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 heading up, Nancy Reagan was heading this up, and I think Barbara Bush later could to continue with it. But it was that commercial where all you saw come up on the screen was an egg frying. And they said, and this was when it was the war on drugs. And it was like, this is an egg. This is your egg. This is an egg on, on drugs or crack, right? Mm-hmm. And it was powerful because that egg represented, if you do this, this is what your brain is going to look like on crack, right? going to be fried. It's going to be fried. So we need similar kinds of impactful campaigns, especially in the day and time of social media. And now in a day of time, what I call this new era around COVID, I believe COVID is, is one of the most tragic public health crises that have ever hit the planet Earth because it's across the planet, right? But when you look at the opposite side of the tragedy, what are some triumphant things? I believe is building greater connection. We have a way to now reach people more, quicker, faster with the whole, you know, virtual reality. So we have we have upped our game around social media. Now you got things like Clubhouse and all this other stuff that some of that is coming up and it forced us to think of how do we build platforms to make people come together quicker, faster, timely. Like we could have this talk now and debut it around the world as opposed to what we could have done. Now we had podcasts pre-COVID, but now people are being even more creative, right? And engaging people. So we should look at how can we use, how can we turn this tragedy into triumph to help build greater, build connection and community and, and um, conversations about issues like domestic violence mm-hmm. and, and sex trafficking. How could we educate our kids? I think I think homeschooling is a good thing. Now, maybe I'm saying that because my child is much further along. <laughs> I know parents are like, oh, please send them back to school. But some of some things that have come out of that, we can learn from, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I agree. I think we're living in a time now, there is no excuse for us not to be able to change the trajectory of some of these horrible experiences that we're having. By the way, Domestic violence, sexual violence, and child abuse is skyrocketed. And even the United Nations came out with an article not long ago that said it is our second pandemic mm-hmm. because of quarantining and, right. and all that. Frustrations and financial challenges. It just creates this just powder keg of yes. uh, emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that... Um, you know, we were talking about sex trafficking a little bit before we jumped into uh, this podcast. And I think issues revolving around um, physical abuse, domestic violence, sexual sex trafficking, uh, pornography, all of these things, um, you know, they just, they have such a negative connotation that I think we just, and, and sex trafficking is getting a lot more um, traffic 
for lack of a better word. You know what I mean? People are, are, are hearing about it more. But um, these topics are just so taboo. You know, who wants to talk about domestic violence? It's just so dark. You know, it's so depressing. Yes. It's just so depressing. And yet, um, it, it, it's so necessary. I do think one of the things that's happened in the last, uh, I think, five to 10 years in the whole sex trafficking area with people seeking to help uh, survivors and so forth is they're finding that it is, and this is a sad thing to say, but it is financially a better investment of resources to focus on prevention than it is on rehabilitation because the individual who's been so traumatized that the recidivism rate in victims of trafficking is so high. And I mean, I did a whole documentary on aftercare homes. So I love aftercare homes. I think it's needed, Mm -hmm. but you know, the issue of prevention just seems so important to me in not just trafficking, but obviously in talking about intimate partner violence. Um, how do, how does somebody wrestle with that? You know, even if you're going to make a donation um, to an organization that's prevention versus rehabilitation, you know. Uh, David, you you are speaking music to my ears because, and, 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 and I'll coin it said another way, it is so much more costly, damaging, and quite frankly, irresponsible of us to focus on being reactive than proactive. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I struggled in when I when I wrote Don't Look at the Monsters, one of the things that I share in that book is. Um, I would eventually be diagnosed with life-threatening health issues from the stress that attacked every part of my body, my brain, my heart, my autoimmune system, you know, not too far long ago in the, in the distance, um, in the distance, I remember laying on a table at NIH, the National Institute for Health, which is our country's national institution around health with tubes in my arms and them doing a special test on me around my heart because something was going awry with my heart. When they say stress kills, stress will kill. And one of the reasons why I was struggling with this and these these ailments and health issues, life-threatening was because of the journey of trying to get people to fund and to support the prevention model. Mm. And the first thing they'll ask me is, how many women are you serving? How many women are you counseling? How many women have you put in the shelter? How many? No, that's not what I'm trying to address it from prevention. And they wouldn't fund me. Right. And, um, and, and it's unfortunate because it is so much more cost effective and efficient to fund prevention. Do you know how much it costs on a global scale, not to mention in, in the States? The uh, Washington Post, you know, a couple years ago, came out with an article, probably five, seven years ago, came out with an article that said it costs $460 billion a year 
And that's for reported cases. So it really is in a trillion to address domestic violence. When you think of law enforcement, when you think of health care, when you think of lost productivity, companies are losing money, right? When your employee doesn't show up because they're at home with a black eye because they're afraid to come to work or their arm is broken or whatever, child care, all of those things, right? Globally, it's trillions, trillions of dollars. So you share with me the sense and why we would want to continue to put forward investments like that when we can prevent it. You know, think of the smoking trans transformation. You know, I live in the condo um, community now, and you can't walk within 25 feet of this building without your neighbor or somebody calling, you know, the concierge or coming up to you even and saying, you're not allowed to smoke. Mm-hmm. Right. That's prevention. Mm-hmm. That's prevention. And prevention has to start at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now how much are we are, are now we're, you know, some of we might see some of the rates and and, and going down and in, in cancers and things like that. Probably not from smoke It's probably coming up now from chronic other diseases like stress and stuff like that. But you can see us getting our arms around this issue because now we are preventing people from smoking. We pass mm-hmm. laws. You can't smoke in a bar. You can't smoke in a restaurant. You can't smoke within. You you, you probably can't even smoke in your own house, David. Because <laughs> if your neighbor's smelling in their window. <laughs> Hopefully one day. Hopefully one day that will be the case. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's what we need for prevention. Uh. So uh, one last question before we uh, uh, wrap this up, because uh, this has been very educational and um, and inspiring. Um, you wrote a book called Color Me Butterfly. You have uh, butterflies behind you on the wall and this beautiful piece of artwork. What uh, What is so powerful to you about butterflies in your life? When I first wrote Color Me Butterfly, because I didn't know how to write a book, I just was like, okay, Dr. Lisa, change your life or change your life quickly. I'm going to write a book. And I didn't know how to title this book. And so I brought all my friends together. And as I wrote each part, Paul Me Butterflies told in three parts. I would send them the, that part. They would give me feedback and then I would write some more. That's how come I knew I did it in nine months because I would send them the manuscript every three, every three months of, of each part. And so these women had become invested in this book. And the book is pretty graphic. It's, it's a tough read. I, you know, I even shared a story about how my grandfather was a horribly abusing my grandmother and her eight children, including my mother, um, and even once forced his three-year-old son to eat a dead rat. So this was his way of, of abusing his family. And so when I was done writing this book, the original title of the book was In My Shadow, because it talked about the four generations of women living in each other's shadow. But I felt when I was done writing this book, I was empowered. And I was like, I got through it. And I I don't, I don't want the darkness of the shadow. Like you said, the darkness of domestic violence. People aren't going to buy, not that they, they're not going to buy the book, but they're not going to connect with the story mm-hmm. because it's a shameful and it's dark and it's ugly. Talking about three-year-olds eating rats and all this stuff. Um, and so I connected with a friend and I said to her, I don't like the In My Shadow story or title. I want a powerful story. I want a powerful title. So she said, you go, you write poetry, 
So why don't you go out and, and, and figure out a poem that you could write around this book and a title? So I started Googling, you know, things that meant power and, 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 and how women can be powerful and all this. And for some reason, a butterfly popped up. And I started learning about butterflies. And I learned about the metamorphosis of a butterfly. Go through four phases. And if you think about those four phases, that's what an abused woman goes through. And so I came back with the title, Color Me Butterfly. And I sent it to these four, these 10 women that were part of this reading group I put together. And you would have thought I changed them to, told them to change the name of their firstborn. <laughs> they were like, what does a book about abused women and da, 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 got to do with butterflies? And I said, because I don't want the shadow and the darkness of this to be represented in this book, I want hope. And butterflies give us hope. And so not only would that become the title of the book, it would become the logo of my nonprofit organization, Saving Promise. You look at the logo, is a butterfly. It will become by which, and I'll close on this, that I try to get up every single day, David, and go through my own metamorphosis of sorts to give me the energy and the ability to step into what God has called on my life and my purpose and what sometimes I don't feel like doing, but I show up and it's my metamorphosis every day that I can come out on the other end of this and help people that are hurting and, and suffering to go through their own metamorphosis and live a beautiful, hopeful life. That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, lymarlow.com, M-A-R-L-O-W, lymarlow.com. Uh, all of your books are on Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. including uh, Don't Look at the Monster and Color Me Butterfly and savingpromise.org is your organization's website. We'll have all of those links in the show notes and you have a podcast, Stop Living with Monsters. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, L.Y., thank you for sharing your story and helping just educate us and bring uh, a fresh perspective to this issue. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you, David. Hey, congrats on listening to another episode of Inspiration Rising. Why congrats? Because you're pouring education and inspiration into your mind and heart. And that's something we all need if we're going to grow our businesses and reach our goals in life. Now, if you enjoy Inspiration Rising, do us a favor, share it with a friend, take a screenshot of your favorite episode and text it to them. Tell them to search for Inspiration Rising on their favorite podcast app and click subscribe. And if you haven't already, be sure to sign up for Inspo Text. That's our daily inspirational text messages. Just text me right now at 949-401-6090. That's 949 949- 401-6090. Just say, hey, Dave, what's up? You'll get an automated reply with a link where you can add yourself as a contact. And of course, you can always unsubscribe. I want you to know today that you're inspired, empowered, and loved. Not because of the way you feel or what anyone else says about you, but because that's your true identity. Mm -hmm.